copy of God's Word to Isaiah chapter 11. This will be our sermon text this morning. It's page 613 in the church Bible. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. This is the word of God. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt, nor destroy, in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. And our New Testament reading, Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. That's page 851 in the Church Bible. Page 851. Here we see part of the fulfillment of that prophecy to Isaiah, that the Lord would uh, raise up Uh, a royal son of David, even Jesus, and pour out his spirit on him. And we see that here in Matthew chapter 3. So hear these words, the word of the Lord, Matthew 3, starting verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray that he will bless it now to, to us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ our Savior and the glorious uh, portrait we get of him in your word. We pray it would not just be a, a, a picture of Christ that we see here this morning in your word, though, but that we might see the very person of Christ and that we would not just contemplate ideas about Christ, but we would meet with him and that he would speak to us and bless us and save us once again. We ask it for his sake. Amen. 
All right, well, we're starting this series looking at keywords of Christmas. And the first one this morning is hope. The late J.I. Packer, uh, one of the great authors and teachers, great Christian from the past century, wrote this Where there's life, there's hope, is a deep truth. Deeper, however, is the converse. Where there's hope, there's life. We humans are hoping creatures. If the light of hope goes out, life shrinks to mere existence, something far less than life was meant to be. Do you see what Packer is saying there? He say, we know that expression, where there's life, there's hope. As long as, there's, as, long as your heart's beating, you can still be hoping in something. Um, but then he says, really, that, 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 that's true in a sense, but if we flip the statement around, it's even more profound and more true, that where there's hope, there's life. When you run out of something to hope for, you run out of something to live for. Packer goes on as he's writing about this, and he tells this story of a teacher that he had at his, at his school. It was an elite English boys' school, and the headmaster of the school was, was um, a, a brilliant teacher. He kind of stood head and shoulders above everyone there. Um, and uh, Packer looked up to him a lot as a, as a, as a kid, as a, as a student at this school. Um, and... Uh, this, this headmaster uh, was uh, uh, a, a wonderful teacher for him. But many years after Packer left this school, he ran into one of his former teachers, who was a colleague of this headmaster, whose name was Bill. And uh, Packer said, well, how's, how's Bill doing? Knowing that, that he, was, he was much older now. And the reply was this, he's very low. I asked him what he was doing these days. All he would say was, waiting for the end. Packer writes, remembering the sharp-eyed, upbeat vigor of the headmaster's mind in his heyday, I felt very sad for him. Here was a long-lived, brilliant man, now withering rather than blossoming as he aged. Is that the best one can hope for? Without hope, life withers. Life dies out. Without something to look forward to, something to hope in, uh, then, then uh, life becomes lifeless. I think everyone would agree with that, right? We, we, would all, we all kind of see the, the sense of that. It seems pretty clear. But as, as we think, okay, so we've got to have hope. But then two, two, questions, um, two questions come to mind for me. First, well, what kind of hope do we need? We need hope, but, but what kind of hope? Well, we need a hope that's good enough. We need a hope that's strong enough to get you through. Um, maybe for some of you, you hate the Maine winters, but you love Maine summers. And so, you know, just you enjoy that Maine summer so much that it gets you through the Maine winter. Some people, the Maine summer is not enough and they, they head south, right? Uh, but so you, the hope has to be good enough to be able to get you through whatever it is you need to get through. You know, it needs to be strong enough to sustain the loss and the disappointment and, you know, the, 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 the downward trajectory of life as it gets harder and as it gets, uh, as more griefs come in. We need something that is stronger than all those things and sweeter than the bitterness of those things. So we need a hope that's good enough. We also, however, we need a hope that's true. We don't want a hope that's good, but, uh, but it, there's no, nothing to it, right? A confidence in something that doesn't actually exist. We can't be kidding ourselves in order to make life livable. That's, that's, that's uh, useless for us. The, the wonderful thing about the hope we get here in Isaiah 11, though, is that it's good enough and it's true. It's the glorious news of Christmas, right? 
there is hope. There is hope for everyone who will come to Christ. And it's a good enough hope, and it's a true, dependable, real hope. I don't know where you're all at this morning, loved ones. Uh, For some of you, this might seem, um, you know, it's just... Uh, you've lost a sense of personal, invested hope in the sense of God's uh, promises. Uh, it's, not, it's just not compelling to you anymore. Perhaps uh, you've lost a bit of your hope in Him. Um, for some of you, perhaps, uh, other hopes seem more compelling. Maybe for those of us who are younger, you know, life still ha- holds out a lot more promise, perhaps, and there's just more to look forward to. I mean, it's Christmas, right? And we've got a whole bunch of presents coming on the 25th. What's not to be happy about? Um, I'm not sure where you're all at. But the the truth is, loved ones, that every other hope will disappoint you and let you down. Every other hope will will prove false in some way. It will will let you down and and be insufficient, not not good enough. Or perhaps if you're at a place of despair or discouragement, you know, this is is the good news of, of the gospel for you, that there is a hope, and God calls you to it. This hope is what we're talking about in Isaiah 11 this morning. As we dive into Isaiah 11, let's take a second here to get our bearings. So God has sent Isaiah to, uh, to preach to Israel. Isaiah is a prophet, of course. His main job is to go and say, this is what the Lord says. Pay attention to what the Lord is saying. And his main message um, is a message, yes, of hope, but it is coming in a package of uh, judgment and condemnation uh, for the people. Uh, In Isaiah 6, God commissions Isaiah, and he says, Go say to this people, Keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. That's Isaiah 6, where God says, here's your message, Isaiah. Here's what you're supposed to preach on uh, for the next few years in Judah. Judgment and exile are coming for your sin, Israel. God's people have uh, they, 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 they've blown it over and over and over. They've forsaken God. They've broken His covenant. They've worshipped other gods. And now God says, it's, 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 uh, I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to send you into exile. And at the end of chapter 6 there, which we just referenced, where Isaiah is commissioning, or God is commissioning Isaiah with this message of judgment, the, the chapter ends with the description of, of the coming judgment. And it gives us a picture of uh, uh, of Israel being like a tree that's been chopped down. Nothing left. Just a, a lifeless, dead stump. And, uh, um, but then we, we read on and, and we see that this stump is actually going to produce life again. Some, something's going to start growing again from this stump. And this is, the, this is Isaiah's message too. As much as he's preaching about God's judgment coming, he's also saying salvation is coming. And, and as, he, as he preaches this message, he holds out to Israel a wonderful hope. And that's what we see here in chapter 11. It's a hope that can sustain them through exile. That's good enough to get them through even this, this trauma of exile. 
and the, right, the, 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 the shattering experience of what's coming for them. And it's a hope that's not only for Israel and their time and place, but for all of us. So let's look at this hope now in Isaiah 11 under three headings. Uh, first is the king, verses 1 through 5, the king. Then verses 6 to 9, we'll look at the kingdom. And then verse 10, the call. So the king, the kingdom, and the call. All right. Verse 1, diving in. We start with a picture of the king. Verse 1 says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Right? We just saw that image in Isaiah 6. Israel's like a tree that's been chopped down. It's a stump. I'm sure you've probably seen something like this uh, uh, in your own experience. You cut a tree down. It looks like it's dead. But then something starts to grow. It puts up a, a new shoot. Uh, uh, it won't give up. New life is, is coming. And that's the image here of this stump putting forth a shoot. New life, this young sapling. And uh, it's called a rod from the stem of Jesse. So what's, what's this about? What's the, what's the root system that's going to make this shoot come, uh, come up? Uh, it's, it's Jesse, the text says. He's the father of David. King David, of course, the greatest king of Israel, the one that uh, God makes a covenant with and says, you'll be the king, uh, and then I'm going to raise up one of your sons to be the king after you forever. One of your sons will, will sit on the throne forever. And uh, as, you know, as the exile comes in, it looks like that promise is, is like a tree that's been chopped down. It looks like it's over. Um, but God is saying, I, I will raise up a king, even though it looks like everything is over, and the, the line of David is, 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 is finished, and the people of Israel are done. It's not. I will raise up. A king. That's what verse 1 tells us. Then verse 2 says this king is not going only to be descended from David. He's going to be endowed with the Holy Spirit. So this is a king descended from David. This is a king endowed with the Spirit, clothed with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God himself is going to rest on him and equip him. Let me read verse 2. It says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. What do, what do we see here as God promises his spirit for this king? Well, first, it says that the spirit will rest on him. It's hard to, under, to overstate how, how important and significant this is. We see throughout the Old Testament that it's always the spirit of the Lord who comes on the great heroes of Israel to give them the equipping they need to go save Israel. Think of, think of the great heroes, the great saviors of Israel's past history. Right? Moses, he's a man on whom the Spirit rests to equip him to deliver the people from Egypt. Or Joshua, he's filled with the Spirit. The Spirit rests on him and makes him able to go and conquer the Promised Land, bring the people into the Promised Land. Or David, he also is equipped with the Spirit. Elijah, Elisha, the great prophets, equipped with the Spirit. And then throughout the book of Isaiah, he's, he's talking about the Messiah who will come, and he's, he's saying, this is going to be the one on whom, more than anyone else, the Spirit of the Lord rests in a, in a greater way than he's ever rested on anyone else, more than he's ever equipped anyone else. This king will be spirit-filled to the nth degree. How is he going to be equipped? 
First, we're told with wisdom and understanding. This king will be, uh, he'll be able by the Spirit to rule and judge with perfect wisdom, with perfect insight. He'll be able to see to the heart of every issue, to, to, to see the, you know, the, the core thing that needs to be resolved, the issue that needs to be dealt with, the, 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 the decision that needs to be made. He'll have a complete mastery and understanding of every situation. He'll be perfect in that way as a leader for his people. The text says the Spirit will equip him with counsel and might. So this is, this is, uh, this is talking about how the, the Spirit will give him the ability to, uh, uh, to strategize and, to, and then to carry out that strategy. The picture is kind of a, of a general here who's able to plan and then accomplish that plan. All the uh, great generals and leaders of history, right? Think of Alexander the Great or Napoleon or Eisenhower. will all look like utter fools in comparison with the wisdom and the, the, the ability of this king to carry out his plans. Third thing the Spirit of the Lord will do is equip him with an un, unparalleled understanding of who God is and, a, and a, an unmatched reverence for God. The end of verse 2 says, this is the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So not only will this king have a perfect understanding and mastery of every, every situation and always make the right decision, and, and not only will he be equipped to, to, uh, uh, to, to, to make a plan that's perfect and then carry it out perfectly and flawlessly, he'll also be a king who loves the Lord, who knows the Lord, who is devoted to God, who fears God, who leads the people in fearing and worshiping God alone. Everything this man does, this one that's going to be raised up, this king, is going to be dominated by the Spirit of God. He's going to be led in everything by the Spirit. When, we, uh, when we're in a presidential election cycle, we often hear debates about who's the most qualified here, who, who's, the, who's the best fit for the job. We might speak, well, he's got a law degree from Harvard, so, so he's more qualified, or he's got more experience uh, as a governor, as a senator, what have you. He's, he's more experienced. He's, he's got more experience as a businessman. He's more experienced. Or he's, a, he is, you know, all these different qualifications, we go back and forth. But this one, right, this king that God is describing here is going to be perfectly qualified by being filled with the Spirit to rule the people perfectly. He will outshine all others as the sun outshines the stars in the sky. He's perfectly qualified. That's what the first two verses tell us about this king. Then we see what his kingdom, I mean, excuse me, then we, then we see uh, what, what his rule will look like as the king. Verse 3 starts to tell us a bit more about this king's uh, inner life. We turn and we see now a description of how he fears the Lord. This is fascinating that, that uh, the Lord would include this here. That, that right, uh, we've just seen, you know, he's equipped perfectly by the Spirit to lead the people, but now we see his total devotion to the Lord. This is most basic for him, his, his delight in God and his reverence for God. And we can compare all those other kings from Israel's history and their great failure to fear the Lord. This king is going to be different. It's going to be his delight to fear God. And then it goes on to say that he's going to uh, judge not by outward appearances. He's going to judge by, uh, by, by the word of God. He's going to judge by what's right and just and fair. He's not going to uh, be biased by, by, uh, by outward appearances. And then verse 4 says he'll, he'll judge righteously. He'll look out for the poor and for the meek. He's going to take care of the oppressed. 
He's going to care for those who are suffering, those who are uh, under great uh, trials. He's going, to, he's going to defend them from the wicked. He's going to punish all those who do evil. Then verse 5 rounds out this description of this king. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins. Faithfulness, the belt of his waist. He's going to be clothed with righteousness and faithfulness. Right? To do the right thing and to do it every time. To be always doing what is in line with God's word and to be faithful in doing it. He's going to be uh, uh, doing this uh, uh, unflinchingly and faithfully. He's never going to, to back down from doing what he should do. Loved ones, I hope you are seeing from the text here in Isaiah this person of Christ in his perfect kingship for you. He will be, uh, he will be brilliant. Uh, that's what the text is promising the, the Israelites here. He's going to be a man of action, and he's going to be a man of reverence for God, and he's going to be a man who has compassion on the lowly, the afflicted, the poor, the humble. He'll be a man who is a terror to those who do evil. So we see this can't be anyone but Jesus, can it? He is the one the New Testament shows us that is filled with the Spirit, as we saw in Matthew 3. He's the one on whom the Spirit rests. He's the one who's equipped perfectly to go out and save his people to be the perfect king for them. Loved ones, so as, as Israel's heading into exile, as they see, you know, all their institutions are, are uh, being destroyed, the kingship seems to be done for good. Um, the royal line of David seems to be ending in uh, and ending with a whimper. Um, as they see the temple burn, as they see their loved ones killed, as they go into exile and they're not sure, you know, how it's all going to turn out in the end. Isaiah says, "Here's your hope: your king will come. He won't be all like you know, like all the failed kings of your past. He will come, and he will save you, loved ones. Here is the king who won't let." them down, and of course he's the one who's also not going to disappoint or let us down. We're always pinning our hope on this person or that person, a spouse, a politician, a friend, a parent. There's only one person who is worthy of all our hope and who won't disappoint, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. You can't hope too much in Christ. He's the king. He's the king that's coming. That's the hope that Isaiah wants us to have. The next thing we see in the text, though, we turn from the king to look at his kingdom. What kind of a kingdom is such a king going to establish for his people? And that's what we see in verses 6 through 9. What kind of a kingdom? What will it be like? What's going to be beyond the uh, farthest reach of our imagination? It's going to be better than we could possibly imagine. It will be like the Garden of Eden, where sin and the effects of sin won't seem to be able to reach It'll be a place of peace and happiness. We see these images, right? Verse 6 says it's going to be, we're going to see the wolf and the lamb dwelling together. The leopard and the young goat lying down together, being together. We'll see all these animals that normally would tear each other apart living in peace and harmony together. And then verse 7 says the lion will eat straw, you will eat hay like, like the ox. Cows and bears will lie down together. Imagine seeing this on a nature documentary. You wouldn't believe it, seeing, seeing all these animals together. But the Lord says, this is what it's going to be like. What's the picture? It's a picture of perfect peace that extends even to the natural world. It's so pervasive. It's not just a lack of warfare between nation and nation, but it goes down to the very instincts of, uh, of, of, of animals themselves. 
Let me get perhaps the most startling picture of all the pictures we see here. We see this picture of, of a baby playing over a snake's den, uh, of a child sticking his hand into a cobra's den. And nothing happens because of this perfect peace that's come. There's no more fear. There's no more cause for fear. There's no more sources of harm. The kingdom that Jesus brings will be a kingdom of perfect peace. There will be no predators. There will be no prey. And his rule is going to not just affect the surface of things. It's going to go down to the very roots of reality as we know it. And we read the conclusion, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Think of that, loved ones. Think of the the hope that God is holding out for his people here. This should flood our hearts with hope that all the hurt we've seen, all the hurt we've experienced, the hurt we've caused, all the violence we've seen, right? It's all going to be gone. That's the promise of Christ for those who are in his kingdom. Imagine if, if, if in an instant all the pain and suffering you've ever felt was just erased. Gone. And there's no more tragic accidents, no more sicknesses, no more diseases, no more family conflict, no more abuse, not even death itself. All that's going to be gone, Christ is saying, in his kingdom. And it's not just going to be in, you know, uh, at a surface level. This is going to reach down to the very, very roots of reality. There will be no more hurt, no more pain, no more suffering. So many times that people, people have tried, we've tried on our own, right, to make that a reality here and now, apart from Christ. We want what he holds out for his kingdom. We just don't want him to be in charge. We want to do it ourselves. So, uh, right, World War I is the war to end all wars. Twenty years later, there's a bigger war. Or um, uh, we've tried different systems of government to force a utopia, and they end in gulags, and they end in in famine and and, and misery. We've tried uh, things like unrestricted self-expression. Right? We, we've painted pictures of utopias uh, of where you can just be whatever you want to be. The summer of love in 1967. And what's it end in? Misery, emptiness, hollowness, purposelessness, burnout. And we, have, uh, we have the song, What If There Is No Heaven? Imagine all the people living for today, trying to make Eden on earth by our own power. Wouldn't it be wonderful? The answer is no. It just leads to more cynicism and disappointment. We can't do it ourselves because we are the problem. Our sin, our hearts are the problem. There's a famous story. It's probably made up, but uh, it's a good one anyway. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, a a well-known English-British author, um, there was a, a newspaper, it, it, it posed a public question, what's wrong with the world today? Invited people to respond. What's wrong with the world today? G.K. Chesterton writes in, Dear sirs, I am. That's what's wrong, right? Our sinful hearts, our human hearts, are the problem. We can't build the kingdom of God on earth. Only the king can. We can't build the kingdom of God on earth. We can't even do it in our own families, our own lives. Only the king can. That's the hope that God holds out at Christmas in his word, in his gospel. It's that the king has come, and he he has come to save us from our sins, deal with the root problem of our sinful hearts. He came to deal with that. He came to restore, uh, to to, to make a way for us uh, to, to come into the kingdom of heaven that he will build. 
in this new creation. And this is what we see in Christ, isn't it? You know, for the people of Israel, this is something to hope in in the future. For us, it's a reality that we already see begun in Christ. Not finished yet. We're waiting for so much of it, but it's already begun in Christ. What do we see in Christ as he comes? Well, Mark 1.13, Jesus goes out into the wilderness, and he's tempted, of course. And then following that period of temptation, there's a, there, Mark comments that he was with the wild animals. I think Mark's saying, in fulfillment of Isaiah 11 here, and a little, a little piece of fulfillment, the wild animals are at peace with a man in the wilderness. A little sliver of Eden breaking in. Or we see Jesus, right? He goes and he's, he's, he's healing. He's bringing peace. He's, bringing, um, uh, he's giving sight to the blind. He's making the lame able to walk. He is raising the dead. All these things in Jesus' life are saying, here's the king who's come to do what we can't do for ourselves, to bring this kingdom of peace. Most importantly of all, of course, he comes to deal with that fundamental problem of our own hearts. He comes to forgive sins by laying down his life to be the atonement for our sins, by being perfectly righteous so that we could be counted righteous in him. And he's raised from the dead, and, and he's given that new resurrection body. And where does, what does he say to the thief on the cross? Says, uh, uh, you know, what, what's, what's Jesus doing on the cross? He says to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise, the new Eden, the better Eden. We're going to my, my Father's uh, heavenly uh, temple in glory where, where uh, there will be no hurt, where this kingdom is. And he promises to come again and to bring that. So this is our hope. Of course, the, the question for us that remains is, well, if Jesus died and rose again to save us, if he has brought this kingdom, where is it? If he has already come, why does it, why does it feel like we're still in exile? Um, uh, why, why are we still suffering and hurting? Where is the fullness of the kingdom that he's promised? Well, of course, we are still in exile. We're between the times he came first to deal with the fundamental problem of our sin, He's coming back to finish that work and deal with all the consequences of sin. And that's what we're hoping. And so this season of Advent isn't really just a, you know, when we're waiting for Christmas Day to come. Uh, we're not waiting for Christ to come the first time. We're, this is a season where we are thinking also about his second coming. We're waiting. We are like the people of Israel, waiting for him to come and save us and bring his kingdom. All right. That's the kingdom. The final thing we see in the text is the call in verse 10. Verse 10 directs our attention back to this king. It does so in an interesting interesting way. In in verse 1, we saw the king was called the shoot of Jesse. So he's the shoot coming up from the stump of Jesse. And then here in verse 10, as we turn our attention back to Christ, we see that he's actually the root of Jesse. He's the shoot coming from the stump. He's the roots beneath the stump that produced the stump. Isn't that interesting? Christ is uh, the only one who can be in view here. This can't be talking about any human king because who else could both come from David's line and also give rise to David's line? This is the God-man. This is the eternal one, the Messiah, Christ himself. And the text says this king, this Messiah, this shoot and root of Jesse, this one is going to be raised up like a signal that draws all the nations to it. He's going to be like a beacon, like a lighthouse. And it's going to be a signal calling all the nations to come 
and see this king. Come and bow down before this king. Come and serve this king and own this king as their own. And of course, we also see this fulfilled in Christ. John 12, verse 12, tells us that Jesus is lifted up. Verse, verse 12, John, John 12, 12. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus is saying, I am the signal for the nations. I'm going to be lifted up and draw all nations to myself in my death and my resurrection. He, uh, he is the one who's done this. He's raised up in glory. He's calling all nations to himself. And this is what he's calling all nations to come do. Come and hope in me. Come and find salvation in me. Come find forgiveness of sins in me and come find a glorious kingdom and, a, and, and something to hope in that's good enough and true uh, that, that will sustain you through this, the, 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 the difficulties and sufferings of this life. Loved ones, hope in Christ. Put your confidence and your trust and your hope in Him. He offers us such a solid ground for hope. Not a wishful thinking kind of hope. Right? Not, I hope the Red Sox win next year kind of hope. But a real, solid, uh, firm confidence. More like saying, I hope the sun rises tomorrow. Where you know it will. That's what our hope in Christ is like. I know it's hard. It's hard for us to keep this hope in view. It's hard to keep Christ and this glorious unimaginably good picture of a kingdom that he's going to bring. It's hard to keep that in view in the midst of the, the difficulties, small and, and large, in this life. Um, there's, a, there's a poem about a bit of this, and, and it's a, I think it puts it quite well uh, about how we, uh, you know, at Christmas time we can sing all the carols and, and uh, tell the Christmas stories, but um, honestly, sometimes it can just feel hollow in light of what we're going through, the sufferings and difficulties that aren't resolved by uh, a little bit of Christmas. The, the poem goes like this. In the dark streets, red lights and green and blue, where the faithful live, some joyful, some troubled, enduring the cold and also the flu, taking the garbage out and keeping the sidewalk shoveled. Not much triumph going on here. It's playing off the carol, O come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. It's saying there's just not much triumph going on here. We've got the cold, we've got the flu, we've taken the trash out. It's just the same old mundane futility. And often that's our experience. The hope that Jesus holds out just doesn't seem to connect. But loved ones, the the hope that God offers us transforms all of these mundane sufferings and all the traumatic things too, right? This is the hope that can sustain us. It's the hope that's good enough and true. So come and hope in Christ. Put your hope again in Him. Uh, Meditate again on what He's promised to bring you and what He's promised to be for you. And look for the kingdom that is coming. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray indeed that you would fill our hearts with hope. Hope in Christ, our Savior. Hope in the kingdom that's coming. We pray that we would come and um, put all our confidence in him. This we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.